Router woes, mega upload, and mega trouble, and more move it mayhem, all that and more, on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug Ameth. He is Paul Ducklin. Paul, how do you do? Just a disambiguation for our British and Commonwealth English listeners, Doug. <laughs> Ruder. You don't mean the woodworking tools, I guess. No, no. You mean the things that let crooks break into your network if they're not patched in time. Yep. Where the, the, the behavior of what we would call a router <laughs> does to your network more like what a router would do to the edge of your table. <laughs> exactly. So we will speak. get to that shortly. But first, our This Week in Tech History segment. Paul, this week on June 18th, way back in 1979, a big step forward for 16-bit computing as Microsoft rolled out a version of its basic programming language for 8086 processors. This version was backward compatible with 8-bit processors, making BASIC, which had been available for the Z80 and 8080 processors and found on some 200,000 computers already, an arrow in most programmers' quivers, Paul. What was to become GW Basic? I don't know whether this is true, but I keep reading it that GW Basic stands for G Wiz. <laughs> I don't know whether that's true, but I like to think it is. All right, let's get into our stories. Before we get to our uh, stuff that's uh, in the news, we are pleased, nay, thrilled to announce the first of three episodes of Think You Know Ransomware. This is a 48 minute documentary series from your friends at Sophos. The first episode, called Origins of Cybercrime, is now available for viewing at sophos.com slash ransomware. Episode 2, which is called Hunters and Hunted, will be available June 28th. Episode 3, Weapons and Warriors, will drop July 5th. Check it out at sophos.com slash ransomware. I have seen the first episode. It is great. It answers all your questions you may have about the origins of this uh, scourge that we keep fighting year after year, Paul. And it feeds very nicely into what regular listeners will know is my favourite saying. I hope I haven't turned it into a cliche by now. Namely, those who cannot remember history are condemned to repeat it. Don't be that person. <laughs> All right, let's stick on the subject of crime. Prison time for two of the four mega upload founders. Copyright infringement at issue here, Paul. And about a decade in the making. Yes, remember last week when I paraphrased that joke about, oh, you know what buses are like? none come for ages and then three arrive at once but i had to parlay <laughs> it into two arrive at once and no sooner had i said it yeah. than the third one arrived and this is out of new zealand aotearoa as it's alternatively known and mega upload was an infamous early what's known as a file locker service and that's not file locker as in ransomware that locks up your files it's file locker like a gym locker the cloud place where you you upload files so you can get them later that service got taken down primarily because the FBI in the US uh, got a takedown order and alleged that its primary purpose was actually not so much to be a mega upload service as to be a mega download service, the business model of which was based on encouraging and incentivizing copyright infringement. The primary founder of this business is a, a well-known name, Kim.com, and that really is his surname. He changed his name. I think he was originally Kim Schmitz, changed them to Kim.com, created this service. He's just been fighting extradition to the US and continues to do so, even though the AOTROA courts have ruled that there's no reason why he can't be extradited. 
one of the other four, a chap by the name of Finn Batato, sadly he died of cancer last year, but two of the other individuals who were the prime movers of the mega upload service, Matthias Ortman and Bram van der Kolk, they fought extradition, you can understand why, to the US, where they potentially faced large prison sentences. But eventually they seem to have done a deal with the courts in NZ and the FBI and the Department of Justice in the US. They agreed to be prosecuted in NZ instead, to plead guilty and to assist the US authorities in their ongoing investigation. And they ended up with prison sentences of two years, seven months and two years, six months, respectively. So the judge in that case had some interesting observations, I felt. I think you're right there, Doug. Notably, that it wasn't a question of the court saying, we accept the fact that these massive mega corporations all around the world lost billions and billions of dollars. In fact, the judge said that you have to sort of take those claims with a pinch of salt and quoted evidence to suggest that you can't just say that everybody who downloaded a pirated video would otherwise have bought the original. So you can't add up the monetary losses in the way that some of the megacorps like to do so. Nevertheless, that doesn't make it right. And even more importantly, he said, you really did hurt the little guys as well. And that matters just as much. And he quoted the case of an indie software developer from the South Island in NZ, who had written to the court to say, I noticed piracy was making a big dent in my income. I found that 10 or 20 times I had to appeal to Mega Upload to have infringing content taken down. And it took me a lot of time to do that, and it never made the slightest difference. And so I'm not saying that they are entirely responsible for the fact that I could no longer make a living out of my business, but I am saying I went to all this effort to get them to take the stuff down, which they said they would do, but it kind of never worked. And actually that came out elsewhere in the judgment, which is 38 pages, so it's quite a long read, but it's, it's very readable, and I think it's very well worth reading. Notably, the judge said to the defendants that they had to bear responsibility for the fact that they admitted that they didn't want to get too tough on copyright infringers because, quote, growth is mainly based on infringement, end quote. And he also noted that they devised a takedown system that basically if there were multiple URLs to download the same file, they kept one copy of the file. And if you complained about the URL, they would take down that URL. Uh So you would think they'd remove the file, but they would leave the file there. And he described that as you knew and intended that takedowns would have no material effect which is exactly what this indie Kiwi software developer had claimed in his statement to the court. And they certainly must have made a lot of money out of it. If you look at the photos that happened when during the controversial raid back in 2012, they had this enormous property and all these flash cars with weird number plates like God and Guilty, <laughs> as though he was anticipating something. So he, Kim.com, he's still fighting his extradition. But these other two have decided that they want to get it all over with. So they pleaded guilty. And as some of our commenters have pointed out on Naked Security Golly, for for what it seems that they did, when you read through the judgment in detail, it does sound like their sentence was light. But the way it was calculated is the judge worked out that he thought that the maximum sentences they should get under Aotearoa law 
should be about 10 years. And then he figured based on the fact they were pleading guilty, they were going to cooperate, they're going to pay back $10 million and so on and so on, that they should get 75% off. And my understanding is that means that they will put to bed this fear that they will be extradited to the US, because my understanding is the Department of Justice has said, okay, we'll let the conviction and the sentencing happen in another country. More than 10 years on, and still not over. You better say it, Doug. Yes, we will keep an eye on this. Thank you. Let's move on. If you've got an ASIS router, you may have some patching to do, although quite a murky timeline here for some pretty dangerous vulnerabilities, Paul. Yes, it isn't incredibly clear quite when these patches came out for the various many models of router that are listed in the advisory, with some of our readers saying, well, I went and had a look. I've got one of those routers and it's on the list, but there are no patches now. But I did get some patches a little while ago that seemed to fix these problems. Why the advisory now? And the answer is we don't know, except perhaps maybe Asus have discovered that the crooks are onto these. But it's not just, hey, we recommend you patch. They're saying you need to patch. And if you're unwilling or unable to do so, then we strongly recommend, which basically means you had better, disable services accessible from the WAN side of your router to avoid potential unwanted intrusions. And that's not just your typical warning, oh, make sure that your admin interface isn't visible on the internet. They're noting that what they mean by blocking incoming requests is you need to turn off basically everything that involves the router accepting the outside initiating some network connection, including remote administration, port forwarding, bad luck if you use that for gaming, dynamic DNS, any VPN servers, and what they call port triggering, which I guess is port knocking, where you wait for a particular connection and only when you see that connection do you then fire up a service locally. So it's not just web requests that are dangerous here or that there might be some bug that lets someone log in with a secret username. It's a whole range of different types of network traffic that if it can reach your router from the outside could pwn your router, it seems. So it does sound terribly urgent. The two main vulnerabilities here, uh, there is a national vulnerability database, the NVD, which scores vulnerabilities on a scale of 1 to 10. Both of these are 9.8 out of 10. And then there's a whole bunch of other ones that are 7.5, 8.1, 8.8. So a whole bunch of stuff that's pretty dangerous here, Paul. Yes, 9.8 space critical, all in capital letters, is the kind of thing that means if the crooks figure this out, they are going to be all over it like a rash. And what's perhaps weirdest about those two 9.8 out of 10 badness score volumes is that one of them is CVE-2022-26377. And that's a bug in HTTP unescaping, which is basically when you have a URL with funny characters in like spaces, you can't legally have a space in the URL. You have to put percent sign two zero instead. It's hexadecimal code. That's pretty fundamental to processing any sort of URL on the router. And that was a bug that was revealed, as you can see, from the number 2022. And there's another one in the so-called Netatalk protocol that's providing support for Apple computers, which was the vulnerability, Doug, CVE-2018-1160. That is a long time ago. It was. It was actually fixed in a version of Netatalk, which I think was version 3.1.12. 
which came out on the 20th day of December 2018. And they're only warning about you need to get the new version of Netatalk right now. Because that too, it seems, can be exploited via a rogue packet. So you don't need a Mac, you don't need Apple software, you just need something that talks Netatalk in a dodgy way, and it can give you arbitrary memory write access. And with a 9.8 out of 10 bug score, you have to assume that means Remote Outsider pokes in one or two network packets, takes over your router completely with root-level access. Remote code execution horror. So quite why it took them that long to warn people that they needed to get the fix for this five-year-old bug, and why they didn't actually have the fix for the five-year-old bug five years ago, is not explained. Okay, so there is a list of routers that you should check. And if you can't patch, you're supposed to do all that, the block, all the inbound stuff, but just I think our advice would be patch. And uh, my favorite, if you're a programmer, sanitize thine inputs, please. Yes, Little Bobby Tables has appeared yet again, again, Doug, because one of the other bugs that wasn't at the 9.8 level, this was at the 7 or 8 out of 10 level, CVE-2023-28702. It's basically the move it type bug all over again unfiltered special characters in web URL input could cause command injection. So that sounds like a pretty broad brush for cybercriminals to paint with. And there was CV-2023-31195 caught my attention under the guise of a session hijack. The programmers were setting what are essentially authentication token cookies, you know, those magic strings that if the browser can feed them back in future requests, proves to the server that earlier on in the session, they logged in. Presumably they did the right username, the right password, the right 2FA code, whatever. And now they're bringing this magic access card. And you're supposed to tag those cookies when you set them so that they will never get transmitted in unencrypted HTTP requests. That way it makes it much harder for a crook to hijack them. And they forgot to do that. So that's another thing for programmers. (laughs) Go and review how you set really significant cookies. Ones that either have private information in them or have authentication information in them. And make sure you are not leaving them open to inadvertent and easy exposure. I am marking this down against my better judgment, but this is the second of two stories so far that we will keep an eye on. I think you're right, Doug, because I don't really know why, given that for some of the routers, these patches had already appeared, albeit later than you might have wanted. Why now? (laughs) And I guess that part of the story may still have to emerge. Turns out that we absolutely cannot not keep an eye on this Move It story. So what do we have this week, Paul? Well, sadly for Progress Software, the third bus came along at once, as it were. So just to recap... (laughs) The first one was CVE-2023-34362, which is when Progress Software said, oh no, there's a zero day, we genuinely didn't know about this, it's a SQL injection, a command injection problem, here's the patch, but it was a zero day, we found out about it because ransomware crooks, extortion crooks were actively exploiting this, here are some indicators of compromise, so they did all the right things as quickly as they could once they knew that there was a problem. Then they went and reviewed their own code, figuring, you know what, if the programmers made that mistake in one place, maybe they made some similar mistakes in other parts of the code. And that led to CVE-2023-35036, 
where they proactively patched holes that were like the original one, but as far as they knew, they went looking first. And lo and behold, there was then a third vulnerability. This one is CV-2023-35708, where it seems that the person who found it, surely knowing full well that Progress Software was entirely open to responsible disclosure and prompt reaction, decided to go public anyway. So I don't know yeah. whether you call that full disclosure. I think that's the official name for it. Irresponsible disclosure. I've heard it referred to by other people at Sophos. Or dropping O'Day for fun, which is how I think of it. So that was a little bit of a pity. And so Progress Software, they said, look, somebody dropped this O'Day. We didn't know about it. We're working on the patch. In this tiny interim period, just turn off your web interface. We know it's a hassle and then we let us finish testing the patch. And within about a day, she said, right, here is the patch, now apply it, then if you want, you can turn your web interface back on. So I think, all in all, although it's a bad look for Progress Software for having the bugs in the first place, if this should ever happen to you, then following their kind of response is, in my opinion, a pretty jolly decent way to do it. Yes, we do have praise for Progress Software, uh, including our comment for this week on this story. Adam comments, seems like rough going for Move It lately, but I applaud them for their quick, proactive, and apparently honest work. They could, theoretically, have tried to keep this all quiet, but instead, they've been pretty upfront about the problem and what needs to be done about it. At the very least, it makes them look more trustworthy in my eyes. And I think that's a sentiment that's uh, shared with others as well, Paul. It is indeed. We've heard the same thing on our social media channels too, that although it's regrettable they had the bug and everyone wishes they didn't, they're still inclined to trust the company. In fact, they may be inclined to trust the company more than they were before because they think that they keep cool heads in a crisis. Very good. All right. Thank you, Adam, for sending that in. If you have an interesting story, comment, or question you'd like to submit, We'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth, reminding you, until next time, to stay, stay secure. secure.